This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we look at how the vaccine rollout is going for some of Colorado's most vulnerable essential workers. Plus, we look at the state of drought conditions here in the American Southwest. We are really in unprecedented territory right now, and it's not even close. All that and more just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Standing between Colorado and the end of the pandemic are millions who still need COVID-19 vaccines. Issues with supply, access, equitable distribution, new strains of the virus, and vaccine hesitancy complicate the state's path to herd immunity. Meanwhile, workers between grocery store aisles and on production lines are still at risk of getting sick. KUNC's Adam Reyes is here now to tell us about the long road to get doses to those who help people get basic necessities. Hey, Adam, Welcome back to Colorado Edition. Thanks for having me. If supply holds steady, people under 65 in these essential job categories like retail, agriculture, manufacturing, they probably won't get vaccines until March. Do companies have plans in place for when that time comes? I asked Tim Shellpepper about this. He's president of meatpacking giant JBS's fed beef business unit, which includes the Greeley plant. A lot of that work is still being put together. He doesn't know if they'll vaccinate workers at the plant or elsewhere. They're still working with local and state public health officials on that. In the meantime, JBS is trying to convince the workers that vaccines are safe and worth taking. We send out uh, text messages to our employees with updates that will be done in their native language. We're having team meetings inside of the plants small group meetings with key people. Uh, We're handing out flyers at those meetings. JBS and employers like Dollar General, Trader Joe's, and gig worker-based Instacart have announced some incentives ranging from four hours worth of extra pay to $100. Walmart, on the other hand, says it won't be doing anything like that right now. All right. So what's the feeling? Are workers looking forward to getting their vaccines? Two grocery workers I spoke to told me they really, really want it so they can work without facing all those health risks. But like any group, it's a mixed bag. About a third of essential worker respondents in recent national polls by Kaiser Family Foundation and Gallup say they probably or definitely wouldn't get the vaccine. Anthony Martinez works at JBS's Greeley plant, and he already had a mild case of COVID, but he still plans to get vaccinated so he can safely visit his 90-year-old grandparents before they pass away. I want to make sure before I go see them that I'm taking care of. So what about those who are on the other side, who are reluctant to get it? Do they just not want the vaccine because they don't take COVID seriously or is it something else? The vaccine hesitant workers I spoke to definitely take coronavirus seriously. Marisela Guzman long feared getting it at King Supers. Earlier this year, her grandmother died with it. Still, I don't think I'll ever trust it, honestly. Though she might be willing to take it if her employer requires it. Rejection reasons can vary. Scott Smith works at the JBS Greeley plant, too, and he isn't planning to get vaccinated and is clear that trust isn't his issue. I'm not saying it's bad. Some people want it and some people probably really need it. But my personal belief is I haven't ever gotten a flu vaccine, so I'm not going to get a COVID vaccine. Again, Smith doesn't doubt the virus's destructive power. He strongly believes in other public health precautions. He's gotten the virus, his wife has gotten it, and at JBS, his co-workers are still getting it. Nearly 400 cases there now. I'm curious then, is this just a a lack of accurate information about the vaccine? Kind of. Hesitant people tend to point to allergic reactions from the vaccines, the vast majority of which are very mild. 
and I don't want to brush those concerns aside, but I do want to put them in context. One JBS worker who qualified for the vaccine went to the ER after getting it because of a severe allergic reaction from the shot. The company says they were discharged from the hospital within a few hours, no overnight stay, and are now back at work. That's one of fewer than 50 hospitalizations statewide that may be connected to the vaccine, according to the CDC. Most of those cases are under investigation still, but even if they are related to the vaccine, which is a big if, Mm -hmm. those cases make up a fraction of a fraction of a percent of the deaths caused by COVID infections in Colorado. And there are significantly more people who've been vaccinated than people who've been confirmed infected. Anthony Martinez understands talk of these rare reactions drives people away from the vaccine, but he isn't deterred. I think it's the right thing to do. So this doesn't continue. I think everybody should get it. Most of those hospitalizations, by the way, also didn't involve overnight stays. But putting out information isn't enough. It has to come from sources these folks trust. About a quarter of Sunrise Community Health staff declined vaccination, similar to many other healthcare providers in the state. Dr. Mark Wallace is the clinic's chief medical officer. That trusted source, even inside healthcare, may not be what they're hearing from the healthcare literature. It could be their family, it could be their grandma. Wallace isn't discouraged by the polling or hesitance within his own ranks. He says vaccine declining staff at Sunrise mostly want to wait to see how it affects people who took it. He thinks most will come around. And to his point, a majority in the Kaiser Health poll I mentioned earlier felt the same way. Let's talk about the impact of this, though. How could this level of vaccine hesitancy affect our ability to end the pandemic? So 18 percent in that Kaiser poll say they definitely won't take the vaccine. Wallace says that vaccine hesitancy rate across the board would probably be enough to achieve herd immunity. But if it's bigger than that, we could be impacted by certain groups that are not hitting that target. But the whole purpose of talking about herd immunity is we protect people who don't protect themselves. Consider these variants we've been hearing so much about. For now, the CDC says most just spread faster and can't totally dodge vaccines. But the more time COVID-19 spends spreading, the more the virus will naturally mutate, potentially leading to worse, more vaccine-resistant versions. Well, you mentioned companies are offering incentives to people to get vaccinated. Will that help change people's minds? That is unclear. Both JBS workers I spoke to say the $100 incentive the meatpacking giant is offering them has no effect on their decision-making. $100 isn't anything these days. That was Anthony Martinez again. I asked JBS Corporate's Tim Shellpepper if the company company believes the incentive will actually change minds. We think the $100 is an added benefit for our team members. But again, it's just part of what we are doing for this process. But we also respect the individual decisions of our employees. Dr. Wallace warns that monetary incentives could be too coercive, especially for people in poverty. But research on their effects is limited. What about mandating the vaccine? I mean, could we see companies requiring workers to get the vaccine if enough people decline it? Not many employers are considering that publicly, and any that do consider it may face some obstacles, like having to bargain to put such a mandate on union workers. When asked about that, the United Food and Commercial Workers Union in Colorado told me they believe in freedom of choice of care. I asked Dr. Wallace why Sunrise Health isn't mandating COVID-19 vaccines, and he says while Pfizer and Moderna's have been proven safe, there are ethical concerns because the vaccine are under emergency use authorization. Once the vaccines are fully approved, however, the clinic could decide to require it. We can't say no, we wouldn't go there. We mandate other vaccines. Our employees have to get a flu shot. We'll see if other employers end up considering that, too. That was KUNC's Adam Reyes. Thanks so much for reporting on this for us. My pleasure.
We know that people of color are at higher risk for police violence, but data on indigenous people is difficult to come by. Still, the numbers we do have are alarming, like in Montana, where indigenous people are 60% more likely than white people to be killed during encounters with police. As part of our series on fatal police encounters in the Mountain West, Savannah Marr has more. Cole Stump was a Montanan through and through. He spent a lot of time breaking horses. He was raised on the Rocky Boys Reservation in the north central part of the state. He loved being a cowboy. He loved horses, so that was his go-to. If he could be around a horse, he would. I'm on a video call with family members of the 29-year-old father of five and citizen of the Chippewa Cree tribe. He was always laughing, teasing. And he'd play dress-up even with his girl. (laughs) He wore fingernail polish and makeup. <laughs> that laughter is to Sheena Duran's. In the three months since her brother was shot and killed by the Billings police, she's been trying to piece together what happened. I've been in contact with the county attorney's office, the Billings PD records department, the detective from Billings PD. But those agencies say they can't share much information while the case is under investigation. They just stonewall. They don't ever want to release anything. Here's what we do know. Cole Stump was staying with a friend at an apartment complex in Billings in the weeks before his death. He was working under the hood of a car in the parking area when four police officers arrived, responding to a call from one of the apartment residents reporting suspicious activity. Here's Billings Police Chief Rich St. John speaking to reporters the next day. And when the officers attempted to detain, question, and pat him down for weapons and put him in handcuffs for safety purposes... He refused to cooperate and comply. It's not clear why they were detaining him. Chief St. John says they were able to get him face down on the ground, but there was a struggle. He said Stump pulled out a semi-automatic handgun from his waistband and pointed it at the officers. Officers disengaged and two fired multiple rounds, striking the man. Duran isn't convinced. My brother is not a very big guy. How were they not able to subdue him? You know, how do they not have the de-escalation techniques to stop this. Harlan Baker, chairman of the Chippewa Cree tribe, is also skeptical. He wrote a letter to the Montana attorney general saying, quote, Billings police officers appear to continually inflict injury out of anger rather than the need to protect public safety when it comes to indigenous people. For Melanie Yazi, that description rings true. The purpose of this violence is to reinforce the settler order. Yazzie is Navajo and a professor of Native American studies at the University of New Mexico. She studies reservation border towns like Billings, and she says many of them sprung up as military and trading outposts when the United States was colonizing the West. They were engaged in Indian wars, right? They were engaged in incredibly violent warfare against Native people. Fast forward 150 years or so, and Yazi says these towns are still hotbeds of resentment, hostility, and violence towards Indigenous people. We're not supposed to be off the reservation, you know, we're supposed to be like in our place. And the moment that you stop doing that, you immediately become a threat and then you need to be policed. I won't sit here and tell you that officers don't get frustrated dealing with people and make bad decisions. That's Lieutenant Brandon Woolley with the Billings Police Department. To say that they do it specifically to a racial group, I don't believe that that's occurring. Still, the department's own data shows Indigenous people are overrepresented in its arrests and use of force incidents and officer-involved shootings. But Woolley says they're also more likely to be victims of crime in Billings, and that all these things are connected. We have to talk about this substance abuse. We have to talk about the mental health issues. We have to talk about the education rates. We have to talk about the poverty. 
that's the social stuff, right? That when it breaks down, leads to interaction with law enforcement. He says that social stuff is a symptom of historical trauma in tribal communities, something he says law enforcement has no control over and isn't equipped to address. It's that sentiment that's driven a movement across the U.S. to redirect funding away from police departments and into social programs. But Woolley says cutting police funding in border towns would be a mistake. When we get to the bottom of this conversation, the Native American culture doesn't need less policing. They truly need more policing. Angeline Cheek resents that comment. With a statement like that, it's no wonder why our Indigenous people are being killed at such high rates. Cheek is an Indigenous justice organizer with the ACLU of Montana and a citizen of the Fort Peck, Assiniboine, and Sioux tribes. She says we can't police our way out of this problem. We don't need more policing. We need equitable distribution of resources and the recognition of long-standing treaty rights. Tashina Duran is planning a march through Billings to honor her brother's life. Whatever happened between him and the police, she says his story shouldn't be swept under the rug. It seems like being Native that they consider us disposable. So shooting one more, what's that, you know? No one cares. No one seems to care. The Billings Police Department and the Yellowstone County Attorney are currently wrapping up their investigation into Stump's death. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Savannah Marr. Our series, Elevated Risk, Police Violence in the Mountain West, continues tomorrow with a look at one Western town where activists say the police are doing things right. You can find more stories from the Mountain West News Bureau at our website, KUNC.org. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Things are already very dry in the Colorado River Basin this year, and the situation could get much worse for the water that 40 million people across seven western states rely on. KUNC's Luke Runyon explains the current drought conditions in five numbers. Let's start with 84%. That's the amount of land in the river's upper watershed experiencing extreme to exceptional drought. It's the highest percentage since 2002, which is the region's driest year on record. This is when we're supposed to be gaining and accumulating water in the form of snowpack, and that's not happening. Nancy Selliver is Arizona's state climatologist. She says conditions have been deteriorating across the river basin since last summer. Monsoon rains didn't arrive, and record-breaking high temperatures dragged well into fall. Even hardy desert plants, the ones well adapted to water scarcity, have struggled. Creosote is one, um, I personally like to call it the cockroach of the vegetation world, because pretty much nothing kills creosote. I mean, it just it, it survives. But even they're dying, she says. Exceptional drought is a category that is supposed to capture the severity, but also the frequency of an extended dry period. Climate scientists call it D4. And for context, there's nothing beyond exceptional on the scale of no drought to worse drought. And the D4 category is something that is only supposed to be designated when you're seeing conditions that are so extreme, they're only happening once every 50 to once every 100 years. That's Becky Bollinger, Colorado's assistant state climatologist. That takes us to our second number, three. 
That's how many exceptional droughts the basin has seen in the last 20 years. And the droughts that we are seeing are becoming that much more severe because of the temperature component. They're warmer. Which means the atmosphere is thirstier. It sucks up moisture from forests and crop fields with greater intensity. In parts of the basin, Bollinger says climate change has caused conditions on the ground to bump up against these designated drought categories. Even though conditions may be evolving and getting even worse, we don't really have a way to depict that um, because D4, that's that ceiling, that's that absolute worst. In droughts like this, you run out of superlatives. The dryness is currently off the charts in parts of the watershed. John Meyer is with the Utah Climate Center. The number that captures the severity for him is 12 inches. And that's about the amount of water that our soils are behind in terms of what they normally would have. That deficit is about the same amount of precipitation that falls in Utah in an entire year. We are really in unprecedented territory right now, and it's not even close. And because the deficit is so substantial, it's very unlikely we'll see any sustained drought recovery this year. It doesn't matter if we get an incredible snowpack. Our soils are so depleted right now that that's not going to really translate to water coming down through the river systems. That gets us to our next number, 46%. According to John Fleck, that's how full the Colorado River's biggest reservoirs are combined. Fleck runs the Water Resources Program at the University of New Mexico. These reservoirs are as empty now as when they started filling Glen Canyon Dam in the 1960s. With the reservoirs less than half full, that brings us to our final number, 2026. That's the deadline for water users to come up with a new set of managing guidelines for the Colorado River. The challenges are really hard and it's easy to put them off if you get a wet year. And the dry years are what force um, the really important steps forward in the policy community. Extremely dry years that produce eye-popping statistics tend to grab officials by the shoulders and give them a good shake. And that's important for the entire region, Flex says, because the future of the Colorado River is going to be all about learning to live with less. I'm Luke Runyon. At this point in the pandemic, we know that the coronavirus is primarily transmitted through respiratory droplets in the air. And this relatively simple scientific finding, airborne transmission, is spurring school districts across Colorado to look into upgrading their ventilation systems, in theory adding another form of protection for students and school staff. Yesenia Robles is a reporter with Chalkbeat Colorado, and she's been reporting on the kind of upgrades school districts are exploring, how they work, and how much they cost. She's here with us now to tell us more. Hi, Yesenia. Hi, how are you? I'm good. So what did you learn about airborne transmission and ventilation for this story um, that you think would be helpful for us to understand? So researchers do believe that the virus can be transmitted through the air, and some of the measures that were all already practicing like wearing masks and distancing are helpful. But the other part of protection that could help all of us is to have an awareness of the filtration or the ventilation 
in the space we're occupying, especially if you're around people who are outside of your household. And so that takes us to your story and your reporting. I guess we'll start with Denver. 17 schools there actually already got some upgrades last year, and they got them with the help of a local professor. Tell us about what happened there. So Denver actually has upgrades in a lot of their schools in different ways, but in this particular um, 17 schools, there was a researcher at CU Boulder who got some help from philanthropists and wanted to be able to throw some additional help to schools as part of their efforts to reopen safely. And so he took some of his knowledge and research that he's had and he uh, went out and purchased some air filters. And these are the HEPA portable filters that you might find at the stores yourself. He said they're not always designed for bigger spaces like schools or commercial areas. So he went with some students into the schools, um, put some sensors to track how they're working so he could identify the best placement and he's created this dashboard where now the, the school classrooms that have these filters can track in real time how well they're filtering out particles so they can make adjustments when things aren't working well. Wow, that sounds incredible. How much would it cost to have these kinds of systems installed in other schools across the district? And is it reasonable for, for the district to decide to go forward with it? The district estimates it would take $2.5 million to roll out these types of filters in all classrooms. The researcher who I talked to who's partnering with Denver Public Schools on this believes, though, that that might not actually be necessary when he was testing the air filtration in different classrooms to figure out which ones needed most help. He ran into some classrooms that already do really good work with their existing systems. So he believes that the school district would not need to put filters in every classroom. So it could be less than that cost. Um, That's also just a startup cost after those devices are purchased. The maintenance on them to just replace the inside filters is probably a lot less than that. Another one of the key things you reported on is that some of the schools across many districts in Colorado that are looking at upgrades like this are simply too old, or maybe they've been remodeled over the years in a less than ideal way. How does that impact the kind of filtration that's available to any particular school? So the standard that the associations have recommended is a MERV 13 rating, which just means that it can that that's the kind of filter that can filter out small enough particles such as the coronavirus. But some school districts have HVAC systems that are old and that would not be able to handle such a filter. And so pretty much across the board, I've found most school districts have upgraded the ratings of their filters that they use, but not all of them can get to the MERV 13 rating that is suggested. And that's because the HVAC systems would need upgrades to be able to tolerate the harder um, push of the air that would go through those filters. Now, we're almost out of time, Yesenia, but I wanted to ask you about what money was available for schools. I know Adams 14 got a grant to pay for some technology upgrades. Can you quickly tell us about what money is available for schools for stuff like this? The Adams 14 grant for for these devices came from the Safe Schools Reopening Grant. It was a pot of 
federal money that the state allocated specifically for reopening um, school districts. And several school districts already got this money for different things like some districts used it to replace filters. And so they've gotten some help. Several school districts feel they need more help, especially if they were to do the most ideal things like replacing HVAC systems. But um, so there's different pots of money for school districts right now, but they are all limited in certain ways. Yesenia Robles is a reporter with Chalkbeat Colorado. You can find a link to her story on our website, KUNC.org. Yesenia, thanks for joining us. Thank you. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, we'll take a look at how COVID research can be repurposed for use in dealing with illnesses like cancer. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.